The scripture reading is taken from 1 Peter, first chapter, verses 13 to 25. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Christ Jesus is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on a Father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. But you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Just a quick reminder, Tuesday, special day, guys, remember? Just giving you a little tip. Valentine's Day. I know when I go look for a card for Tina and uh, I read through it and I'm just like, wow, that's great. That's everything the way I wanted to say it. And can't say it any better, so it's just like, dear Tina, you know, like what the card says, love Norb. Um, one time I tried to submit some lines to Hallmark, but they were rejected. Um, you'll probably understand why. Roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, and so are you. But the roses are wilting, the violets are dead, the sugar bowl's empty, and so is your head. I see your face when I am dreaming. That's why I always wake up screaming. (laughs) Kind, intelligent, loving, and hot. This describes everything you're not. My love, you take my breath away. What have you stepped in to smell this way? (laughs) Maybe I better stick to writing sermons. Well, we're just getting started on a new series of messages called the Hope Series, and it's a study of Peter's first letter. This morning, we're going to look at the verses that John read for us from chapter 1, verses 13 through 25, but specifically, our focus will be on verses 15 and 16. But now, you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. 
So we're going to talk about holiness. What is holiness? Why should we pursue holiness? And how do we pursue holiness? We read in Hebrews 12, verse 14, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. According to this verse, there are two things that we should pursue, that we should make every effort to chase after. One is peace with others, and two, holiness. This isn't optional for followers of Jesus. And that verse always sobers me. It says that if there isn't some degree of holiness in our lives, there's really a a question of um, of whether we've ever truly experienced God's saving work. If we don't love what Jesus loves, if we don't want to be like him, then maybe we've never really met him. God's saving work through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has practical, real-world implications for our lives. It is truth that can't be kept on a page or even in a church. It follows us home, to our school, to our work, to our bedrooms. It grabs hold of every detail of our lives, our thoughts, our sexuality, our money, our leisure, our relationships, our desires, our dreams. Perhaps you've already discovered that living the Christian life can be really hard. There are times you do things you know you shouldn't do. There are other times you say things that you wish you hadn't said. Have you ever wondered why there still seems at times to be this desire or want to sin? I wonder myself why I can be so unholy at times. And sometimes it can be rather discouraging. I sometimes wonder if there is any hope for me. And maybe you wonder the same thing. Not about me, about yourself. (laughs) Maybe you wonder about me too, but just realize that came out really awkward. But is there any hope for holiness? So what is holiness? Holiness is not, first of all, perfection. Because if it were, we would then give up. And we would say to each other, well, you know what? I'm not perfect. I never will be perfect. You're not perfect. You'll never be perfect. So why even bother trying? Some might try to achieve perfection, and and it's motivated by a, a legalistic means of just kind of keeping everything that might somehow cause them to sin or stumble away uh, from their lives. But it's not perfection. And it's not even an adherence to a set of rules. Because if it were, we would end up defining who is holy solely on the basis of what would be a fairly arbitrary set of rules. And these rules may be different from one group to another group. So I might be considered holy by one group and yet unholy by another. So holiness is simply being set apart for God's exclusive use. The Hebrew word for holy expresses the thought of something being separated. So is this attainable? Absolutely it is. In fact, God has called us to it. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And it's just a great reminder, even as we sang this morning, that God is holy. It's one of his main attributes. 
And in the Old Testament, his holiness was revealed in the temple, specifically in the Holy of Holies. And only one time per year on the Day of Atonement could the priest enter into this Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice for all the sins of the people. This temple, the Holy of Holies, was a place for God's exclusive use. In the New Testament, we come to understand that the Christian, the follower of Jesus, is really the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. You are that sacred, holy of holy places. And again, in Romans 12, 1, we see this offering of ourselves or our bodies When Paul writes, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Get this, holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual act of worship. And so holiness is being set apart for God's exclusive use, because God is holy. And it's also then conformity to the character of God. It's being shaped into the image of Jesus Romans 8:29 For those God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son and 2 Corinthians 3:18 and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being listen transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the spirit and so we're set apart for God and conformed to God but how do we become Holy. Am I holy right now as a believer of Jesus Christ? Maybe a week into this journey or maybe 10 years into this journey? Or is this struggle for holiness uh, a part of my life here on earth? Or can I look forward to being made holy in heaven? And in a seemingly confusing way, the Bible answers yes to all three of those questions. Let me just walk you through this a little bit. First, I want to talk about our positional holiness. And I'll give you some easier words to remember than, than the, maybe the more technical theological term. But our positional holiness, what we are. Simple word here is changed. Just remember that whether we are mature Christians or immature ones, young or old, As soon as we cross the line of faith and we believe in Jesus and his work on the cross, what he did for us, the New Testament writers then immediately call those followers of Jesus saints, set-apart ones, and even holy ones. Hebrews 10.10 tells us that we have been made holy. In other words, we have been changed. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And so at that moment of salvation, God declared us holy and perfect because of the justifying work of Christ. It was as if God looked down from the judge's bench and and, and declared us not guilty because the penalty for sin was paid once and for all through Jesus. And nothing can change this positional holiness, what we are. Not even our subsequent behavior or our fear somehow of God's displeasure. No, we are holy because God has declared it so and his son has assured it by his death. 
But it raises the question, right? Even though we are holy, we've been changed, we've been made holy, do we feel holy? Are we actually perfect in this sense? And the answer, of course, is a resounding no, which brings us to the second aspect of holiness, our progressive holiness. This is where I'd say being what we are. We are, in fact, changing. You see, at least half of the New Testament is concerned with encouraging believers to live holy lives, lives that are set apart God, that are conformed to God. Hebrews 12, 14 and 2 Peter 3, 14 command that we make every effort now to be holy. And Paul declares that we are, Paul declares what we are, excuse me, as believers in the first half of the book of Ephesians. And then he begins the second half, beginning in chapter 4, by saying, Now I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And so the first three, he lays out the theology of the church and what God has done in each of our lives. And then he says, Now live it out. Be what you are. We are holy in our standing before God but we are only progressively becoming holy in our thinking, our actions, and our character as we struggle with sin each day. It's almost as if the biblical writers are telling us, be what you are. You are holy. Now just go and be that way. And so right now, we're in process. We're still changing. As we cooperate with God's Spirit, we turn away from sin, and we learn to obey God's Word, we are continually being conformed to God's image and becoming holy. Colossians 3, 8 and 10, if you want to reference that. But we don't expect sinless perfection in this life. You following me? We're changed, we are changing, and our prospect of holiness in the future, what we will become is ultimately to be changed. You see, our our struggle with sin will be a lifelong battle. We are living in a body of sin. Romans 6.6 indicates that. That will someday be exchanged for a new body that will be perfect, pure, and holy. And then we will be presented to Christ as his bride, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And then... We will be made like Jesus with glorified bodies, free from sin and all of its corrupting effect. One day, our practice and our position, what we do and what we are, will be in perfect harmony forever. So we're changed, we are changing, and we will be changed. Theologians call this process of change sanctification. And sanctification is the ongoing process of change that begins the moment a person is saved and then continues until that person's last breath. But who makes us holy? Well, according to 2 Corinthians 3.18, it is the Holy Spirit that changes us. Paul writes, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And in writing to the Thessalonians in in the first letter, chapter 5, verse 23, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept 
blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we are totally dependent on the Holy Spirit to do this change in our lives. We cannot do it ourselves. And yet we often try, right? We take on the burden. We make resolutions. We're going to try harder this week and maybe even change some of our behavior. But therein lies a subtle danger. We can be so focused on changing our behavior and to start to act like a Christian without perhaps ever having become one. You see, we simply cannot change our hearts ourselves. Hebrews 1.9 says of Jesus that he loved righteousness and he hated wickedness. And so to be transformed, to be made holy, means that we too love righteousness and hate wickedness. And this is why more than just external changes in behavior or conforming to a set of rules... Holiness is ultimately a complete renovation of our hearts, something that only the Holy Spirit can do. And so we totally depend on God to make us holy. But God has given us a mind. He's given us a heart. He's given us a will with which to respond to his work in us. And so we must cooperate with this work of the Spirit in our lives. So think about it. We have a choice, and we choose to be obedient or to be disobedient. We are to make every effort to be holy, as I've already said. We are to train or discipline ourselves to be godly. First Timothy 6.11, But you, man of God, flee from all of this. That sounds like an action. It sounds like work that we can do. We flee from all of this stuff. And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. And the same thought in 2 Timothy, uh, Paul writes again, chapter 2 and verse 22. Flee the evil desires of youth. Okay? Just think back to maybe what some of those things were. And he says, flee those and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. You see the activity that we are involved in? We, we choose to be obedient. We make the effort. We train. We flee. We are to put to death the traits of our sinful nature and we're to clothe ourselves with the traits of godly character. Colossians 3.5 Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to our earthly nature, to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And then just a few verses later in in chapter, in verse 12, in, in contrast to that, he says, therefore, listen, as God's chosen people, he's called you. Like we were saying this morning, he's called you by name. Holy, you've been made holy and dearly loved. Just let those words settle. Therefore, as God's chosen people, he's chosen you. He's made you holy. You are dearly loved. And because of that, it goes on to say, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And the emphasis here really is on a personal discipline, on personal responsibility, accepting our part in this process of change. And so it raises the question, how can we be responsible for pursuing holiness and yet be totally dependent on the Holy Spirit at the same time? 
This is, as some might say, the mystery of sanctification. Jerry Bridges, who wrote The Pursuit of Holiness, and if this is a a subject that is of interest to you, I highly recommend that book. It's a great overview and study of the whole subject of, of holiness, which is way beyond what we have time for this morning. But he uses this phrase, dependent discipline. And I like that. It just kind of helps me wrap my mind around it. I need to be dependent, but I need to be disciplined. These two things work together. So we're dependent, and it just refers to our need for God's work in our, in our lives. Right? And, and we can participate in that by just praying, or sometimes we sing, change my heart, O God. Right? Make it ever true. Do the work that only you can do. So we can pray, we can ask, and we ask God to do it because we're dependent on him. But we also bring our discipline to bear to that. And we accept the responsibility to grow in holiness or our efforts, yes, but then empowered and enabled by the Holy Spirit. But make no mistake about it, it's still work. And we need to stay at it tenaciously pursuing holiness, right? And to stay at it, I think we need some motivation. And Peter gives it to us here in these verses. And so I'll take you back now to 1 Peter, because I see in these verses some clues as to what our incentive to pursue holiness is. Why, why would we even bother with that effort? In the first 12 verses, Peter wrote about the Christian's future inheritance. And it's that future perspective that helps them put suffering in perspective. And Pastor Ken led us through those verses over the past few weeks. But it's also that future perspective that then serves as motivation to pursuing holiness now or today. And so let me give you a few things maybe just to hang your hat on this morning. Go, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm to remember that. I'm going to put that in my back pocket. Number one. Part of our motivation to pursue holiness is to be ready for that day. And that day that I'm referring to is the day that Jesus Christ will be revealed. When Jesus returns. That's what he says there. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled and set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Okay? He's coming back. This world, and whether it's in, in our generation or, or not, there's some that, that are very, are very str- of the strong opinion that it will happen in this generation. But the world in which we live, all the stuff that we pursue, all the things that we give our energies to, and all of that stuff, all of that is temporary. And so we are to orientate our minds around our future hope. We need to have that future perspective. I remember a speaker one time speaking about this very thing, and he asked a simple question. When Jesus returns, do you want, to, do you want him to find you doing X, saying Y, or watching Z? See, that's motivation for me. I, I want to be ready. I want to prepare. I want to set my hope fully on this grace that's going to get, be given to me when Jesus Christ is revealed, as, Paul, as Peter writes here. And so I want to be ready for that day. And that's going to motivate my thought life and my actions and the things that I, that I say and do. Secondly, it helps us think around holiness when we accept our status as a child of God. We accept our status as a child of God. You see, followers of Jesus are referred to, even here in verse 14, as children. 
And then in verse 17, we're reminded that God is our Father. See, when we believed for the very first time and we put our faith and our trust in, in Jesus, we crossed that line of faith. We were given new life, new desires, and a new identity as God's children. The pursuit of holiness, I believe, can be fueled by my status as God's child. Because Paul, in in writing to the Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. You, you, you You see that? Holiness, ultimately, is all about imitating our Father. It's not conforming to a group or a religious culture. It's about modeling our lives and actions after the character of our Heavenly Father. And again, that's motivation for me. I'm a child of God. And so Peter writes, as obedient children, right? So I'm a child. I want to be an obedient child. And he says, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. In other words, now you know better. So fight against the desires of sin and separate yourselves from evil. Accept our status as a child of God. Thirdly, motivation for holiness, pursuing holiness, is because we want to be able to reflect God's nature. To reflect God's nature. I already touched on on this, but it's a little different in my mind. You see, on one hand, I'm a child of God, so I want to be like my daddy. But Peter explicitly here quotes the Old Testament. He says, be holy because I am holy. Therefore, I should pursue holiness because that is the core of God's nature. He is holy. And so my motivation as an obedient child is to conform to the character of God. God expects his people to reflect his nature, including his holiness. Kids are often similar to their parents, right? And that's what makes raising children so humbling, right? They do something and you're like, now where did they get that attitude from? Oh, yeah, they've watched it in me. (laughs) They've seen it in me. They've heard me say those things. I'm an assistant coach on Lucas's Community League basketball team, and a couple of weeks ago we were playing a team, and um, how do I describe? There's this, this one kid, and, you know, great ball player, really good ball player. The problem is, is he knew it. And when you've ever seen a 13 or 14-year-old little arrogant boy play basketball and, and just the way he was taunting our kids, and we got good kids on our team, and, and just like almost mocking them, and they, they were beating us pretty soundly. But the worst part of it was I knew exactly who his dad was in the stands. Exactly, I, I knew it. And I was watching how he was acting, and I went... Pfft. Like father, like son. It got so bad that our head coach actually went over and basically said, you know what, if you want to cheer for your, your team, that's fine. Don't cheer against ours. Because it was brutal. But there was just this sense going, oh, you can see it. Now I know where his kid gets it from. It's humbling, isn't it, as a parent? To realize that, wow, our kids pick up. They watch us. Our attitudes, right? And so... I want to be a child of God who seeks to not only accept that status, but also then to reflect 
my father's nature. Fourthly, there is a sense here too, a very strong sense that we need to not only, we need to live in reverent fear of the father who is also the judge. This is sometimes hard for us to wrap our mind around because we see God as loving and he is the father and he is all of that. But even right here in this verse, it says in verse 17, since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially. So it makes reference to the fact that God is not only our father, but he's also the judge. This reverent fear that he's talking about here is not a paralyzing terror, but a healthy fear of God's discipline and fatherly, fatherly displeasure. In, in, a, in a healthy father-child relationship or even a mother-child relationship, there's intimacy and love, but there's also respect and submission. Because I'm the parent, you're the child. Most children want to make, I think, their dad and their moms proud even. Hey, don't believe me. Just go to a local arena and watch young kids play hockey. When they score a goal, who do they look for? Right? Same is true in soccer, probably just about any other sport. As they get a little older, they mature from that and they intentionally look away because they don't want to, you know, whatever. But when they're six, eight, whatever, right? They score a goal. They're not looking for their teammates to high-five them. They're looking in the stands. They know exactly where you're sitting because they want to see your good pleasure in them. Every step we take, every move we make, should be in light of what God thinks of what we're doing. He's our Father. If we put it in that perspective, that provides the motivation, doesn't it? And lastly, to acknowledge that I was redeemed at a great price. Believers are delivered from a life of futility and meaningless to one of great significance. But that deliverance comes at a big cost. This wasn't a huge amount of silver or gold, the Bible says here, but with the precious blood of Jesus. What does he mean? Jesus gave his life. And therefore, Christians should be grateful to God for this new family that we're now a part of and then live in fear and holiness before him because he paid a great price to redeem us. So only God can produce holiness holiness in us, but we need to work at it. And what I mean is that when we hear or read God's word, we need to strive to obey it in the power of the Spirit. We work at it by actively putting off sin and putting on the behavior of Jesus. We give attention to our relationship with Jesus through prayer and the study of God's word. We just grow in this relationship. But we need this dependent discipline that I referenced earlier. We need God's help, but we have work to do as well. And Paul captures this tension when he writes to the Philippians in chapter 2 and verse 12 and 13. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Pastor Ken, having grown up on a farm, often uses farmer analogies and illustrations, farming analogies. And, and I didn't. But I think we all know enough about farm, a farmer and his crops to understand this. That there are certain tasks that the farmer must do, right? 
He's the one that has to plow the field. He's the one that has to cultivate the ground. He's the one that has to plant the seeds. He may even be the one to fertilize the seed or irrigate the land if it's dry. He can do all of those things. But what he cannot do in spite of all of that work is make the seed germinate and grow. Only God can do that. And that's our relationship with God. There are things that we can do, but we trust him to do the growth and the change in us. And so as followers of Christ, we should live in holy fear because we're deeply loved by God. God God doesn't just forgive or ransom us. He adopts us as his children in love, and he makes us his children. The greatest proof of God's amazing love for us is that we are his children. John writes this, See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. And God uses this language of adoption to encourage us in the hard, ongoing work of learning to obey and follow Jesus as we wait for his return. God doesn't just point back to his love and forgiving us and redeeming us in the past. No, he uses the language of the family to say, I love you right now. You have a relationship with me that isn't changed by your performance. I am your dad. You are my son. You are my daughter. Nothing can change that. I love you. I am always your father. And so holiness is not just a list of rules. It's about imitating my father. He is loving. He is kind. He is pure. He is truthful. He is patient. And he is gentle. And because I'm his kid, I want to look like him and please him. 